power on. Greetings sapient being. Welcome aboard the Starship Alexandria. Prepare for the user podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back aboard the Alexandria. I know many of you were taking holiday leave from the Starship today, so it's good that all of you could join me again. We're presently on our way to the moon to discuss... Okay, okay, I know. The Alexandria isn't a real Starship. It's a Starship of the imagination. And as powerful as the human imagination is, it seems like we could imagine just about anything, imagination alone doesn't make something real. But what is real? How do you know something is true from false? For that matter, what is knowledge? On this episode of the User Podcast, we're going to explore just that, the nature of reality and the reality of knowledge. Almost 2,500 years ago, in 369 BCE, the infamous Greek philosopher Plato wrote one of his many dialogues, this one concerning itself with the very nature of knowledge. Named after the Greek mathematician and geometer Theotetus of Athens, who lived from 417 to 369 BCE, the dialogue would reflect a conversation between Socrates and Theotetus himself. In the dialogue, Theotetus would end up defining knowledge as true belief with an account. In other words, you know something when you believe it, it's actually true, and you have good reason to think it's true. In Western philosophy, at some point we'll have to try and figure out what that actually is, but that's for another time, that's essentially the definition of knowledge that's accepted today. Knowledge is justified true belief. It's agreed that all three are necessary. You can't know something without believing it. A belief can't count as knowledge unless it's justified. It can't just be a lucky guess. And you can't know something if it's false. You can know that something is false but you can't know something that is false. But let's notice something within that definition. There is no mention of certainty. And without certainty, do you really know that you know something? Another of the most famous texts in philosophy, and by many philosophers' measure, perhaps the most important, written in 1641, is the French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy. A text that still stands tall in philosophy departments at many a university, in it Descartes, himself a pivotal figure in the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, is looking for a solid ground on which to base all knowledge. To that end, he is looking for a belief that cannot be doubted, and thus takes seriously even the most ridiculous ways that his foundational beliefs could be false. It may seem obvious, Descartes said, that I am here, sitting by the fire, wearing a winter dressing gown. But he has dreamed such things before, and been just as convinced. 
He considers his condition, shakes his head, and admits that it certainly feels like he's awake. But then again, he has felt the same surety while dreaming. And I want to stop here for a second to discuss this. The nature of dreams and sleep will be a subject for a future user podcast, but it should bring us pause when we consider that, outside of lucid dreaming, when we dream, regardless of the absurdity of what is happening around us in that dream, we accept the events in the dream as perfectly normal, or at least perfectly possible. In your dream, you could be flying through the sky, and you can even feel your stomach drop if you descend quickly enough in flight. But you never question that you are able to fly. You accept it as if it were as natural as the ability to breathe. What this says about our dreams or our mind's relationship with reality is a bit of a puzzle, but a puzzle that as we learn more about consciousness in the future may have surprising answers. But back to Descartes, who, as we just discussed how visceral our dreams can be, is now realizing that he could be dreaming, and there is no way to prove to himself he's not. This doesn't make Descartes doubt the existence of the world, however. After all, he surmises, the ideas in his dreams come from his experience during waking life. So he can't always have been dreaming. But then Descartes considers an alternate possibility for the source of those ideas. What if some malicious, powerful, cunning demon has done all he can to deceive me? What if the sky, the air, the earth, colors, shapes, sounds, and all external things are merely dreams that the demon has contrived as traps for my judgment. If true, not even the world exists, and because a lifetime of experiences fed to Descartes by such a demon would be indistinguishable from a lifetime of experiences of the real world, to his mind there is no way to prove that this isn't true. Indeed, no matter what test Descartes performed to see if this was true, the demon could simply fool him into thinking he had passed the test when he actually hadn't. Later philosophers would call this the brain-in-a-vat problem. If you were just a brain in a vat floating in a pot of goo of some kind, being fed sensations by a computer to make you experience a fake world, your entire life would consist of the same kind of experiences that it has consisted of. There is no way to prove this isn't happening. Any test you performed could simply be sabotaged by the VAT system itself. Of course, the flip side to this problem is that you can't know for sure that you aren't being fooled by a demon or the computer feeding your brain in a VAT either. Thus, you can't know the world is real. And if you can't know something as basic as that, something that seems to undergird our entire belief system, it seems you can't know anything at all. Knowledge is impossible. But is this argument sound, and should we care about knowledge in the first place? Descartes worried that knowledge was impossible because it was impossible for any belief to be justified. You couldn't be justified in believing the world was real because you couldn't be certain that you weren't being fooled. Let's take the brain in the vat theory a step further to something that has become rather popular in recent years, the simulation hypothesis. Though really a play off of age-old concepts and problems, the simulation hypothesis was popularized by Nick Bostrom in 2003 with his paper titled, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? In it, Bostrom states, Many works of science fiction, as well as some forecasts by serious technologists and futurologists, predict that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. Let us suppose for a moment that these predictions are correct. One thing that later generations might do with their super-powerful computers is run detailed simulations of their forebears, or of people like their forebears. Because their computers would be so powerful, they could run a great many such simulations, 
Suppose that these simulated people are conscious, as they would be if the simulations were sufficiently fine-grained and if a certain quite widely accepted position in the philosophy of mind is correct. Then it would be the case that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original race, but rather to people simulated by the advanced descendants of an original race. It is then possible to argue that, if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. Therefore, if we don't think that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we are not entitled to believe that we will have descendants who will run lots of such simulations of their forebears. Called an ancestor simulation, basically the simulation hypothesis is the idea that we are living inside of a computer simulation, perhaps created by posthumanoids of some kind or some future version of humanity. The computer simulation is not unlike the popular video game franchise The Sims, where you control characters within the game, but instead of trying to save the princess or stop zombies from taking over Raccoon City, you're merely playing the game of life, getting a job, buying a car, starting a family, gardening, etc. But in the simulation hypothesis, we, literally you and I, are actually the video game characters, and proponents of the hypothesis claim that like Descartes' dream state or the brain in the vat, there is no way that we can disprove that we are living in a computer simulation. That was until 2017 when two teams of theoretical physicists, one from the University of Oxford and the other from the Hebrew University in Israel, published their findings in the prestigious journal Science Advances, showing conclusions of research they had done which were actually a kind of a side effect generated by a separate study concerning quantum systems and computational algorithms. What the teams found was that, mathematically, with any kind of computer we could conceive, digital or quantum, there aren't enough atoms in the entirety of the universe to allow for the creation of a computer that could simulate the universe at the quantum level, the very basis of our reality. It's just not possible. In fact, the whole concept of the simulation hypothesis requires you to accept a lot of givens, but one in particular, that computational power will continue to improve to the point that graphics, much like in your favorite video game, will get to the point that the digital representations will become indistinguishable from reality. But as has been proven through scientific research, there are limits to computational power, and there is no evidence or guarantee that computer graphics will become truly lifelike, as hard as Hollywood movie studios and hologram-laden concert venues may try. But admittedly, that's based on our present understanding of computers. What if there was some entirely different type of computer, some supercomputer, that we supposedly lowly simulations couldn't possibly conceive of that is running this ancestor simulation that the likes of Elon Musk, Nick Bostrom, and others claim we're living in? Well, let's talk a little more about what knowledge is to respond to that question. According to most philosophers, and, it seems, the general public, a proposition, such as a theory or hypothesis, is true if it simply corresponds to the way the world is. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. And if a proposition does correspond to reality, then it's true, regardless of whether you are aware of that correspondence or not. So if knowledge, justified true belief as we defined it, is impossible, it's not because it's impossible for a belief to be true. In fact, notice that in the correspondence theory, things could even be true with our brains and vats or inside of the ancestor simulation. Knowledge in itself is intrinsically valuable, but that's not the only value of knowledge. Understanding the way the world works also helps you navigate and manipulate it. So, you should also value your ability to attain knowledge and resist efforts to rob you of that ability. In fact, a lack of knowledge can often be harmful, even lethal to others, making ignorance an ethically objectionable thing. 
Knowledge is valuable. Its pursuit is worthwhile. But does the fact that we can't be certain that we aren't in some ancestor simulation or a brain in the vat mean that having knowledge is impossible? In short, no. The problem is that there are essentially two hypotheses that are consistent with the evidence of your life experience. Either you are actually awake and not in a simulation and experiencing a physical world, or you are being fooled in some grandiose way, such as by the supercomputer or a demon, into thinking the world is real when it's not. And there is really no test that you can perform to prove which hypothesis is true, especially when it comes to the idea of living in a dream. But in science, two explanations can account for the same data, so you have to delineate between them by appealing to other scientific criteria. Using the concept of Occam's razor, we can ask certain questions to help us delineate. For example, which hypothesis is simpler? That is, which hypothesis makes the fewest assumptions? Which hypothesis has wider scope? That is, which hypothesis explains the most without raising unanswerable questions? Also, which one better aligns with what is already well established? These things are, by definition, what a good scientific explanation should do. So whichever explanation aligns with the most of these criteria is the best explanation. We can do the same kind of thing with Descartes' problem. What is the better explanation for your experiences? That you are experiencing the world right now, or that you are being fed sensations by a supercomputer like in the brain in the vat problem or the simulation hypothesis? The supercomputer explanation isn't simple. It assumes the existence of the world and the existence of a giant, powerful computer in that world, as to where the real-world explanation doesn't require the latter. And the supercomputer explanation also has very little scope. It raises all kinds of unanswerable questions about how the computer works, who built it and why, and how it causes our experiences. But we actually have a pretty good idea of how the universe, if real, came into existence, or perhaps has always existed, and how it would cause your life experiences. So even though we can't prove which hypothesis is true, though the study we described earlier is pretty damning against the simulation hypothesis, we can show which one is better, which one is most likely, and thus which one is more rational to accept and act upon. And thus you can have what equates to knowledge. Can you be certain? No, because even if you can be certain of your own existence, as Descartes argued, I think, therefore I am, you can't, as Descartes tried to do, build up certainty about the entire world from there. But because knowledge doesn't require certainty, you don't have to. Knowledge is simply justified true belief. You are justified in believing that which is most likely, in demons fooling us in our dreams, or our brains and vats, or supercomputer-run ancestor simulations are not the most likely. We are very awake and very physical beings. The universe objectively exists outside of us, and we are very, very real. I'll see you next time on The User Podcast. The User Podcast was made possible by The Knight Foundation Interplanetary Expeditions 
the Earth Cargo Service, Sovereign Tech First University, and with contributions from users like you. Thank you.